Today on Something You Should Know, the importance of being a really good kisser. Then, digital currency. You really need to know and understand Bitcoin, blockchain technology, digital art, and NFTs. There's a 12-year-old kid in London who invented his own series of NFTs. They were digital art. He drew a series of whales. And he sold the whales online, and he ended up selling them for millions of dollars. Also, why do most of us have a middle name? And some fascinating stories from the Academy Awards you may have never heard, including how Oscar got his name. That is a bit of a mystery, how the award got its name. It was during the 1930s, and there are about four different origin stories, and nobody really knows for sure, but the name kind of caught on. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story, because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often-once-in-a-while-try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome to Something You Should Know. A lot of interesting stuff to talk about today, and we're going to start with the topic of kissing. So how important do you think that first kiss is? Well, probably it's more important than anybody realized. According to a survey, 59% of men and 66% of women have actually abandoned a potential relationship because the other person was a bad kisser. Cheryl Kirschenbaum is the author of a book called The Science of Kissing, and she says kissing is one of the most intense emotional triggers we experience. Even just a brush of the lips stimulates a large part of the brain, and if something is off with that first kiss, the negative reaction can be very powerful. And that is something you should know. You've no doubt heard of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, digital assets, maybe even NFTs, non-fungible tokens. These are all investment terms that you've probably heard, but perhaps you have, as I have, thought of these things as very speculative, risky. And there's long been the advice that you shouldn't invest in something you don't understand. And these digital assets can be hard to understand. 
which is why Rick Edelman is here. Rick is a financial advisor. In fact, Barron's ranked him three times as the nation's number one independent financial advisor. He's authored several books on personal finance. He holds two patents for financial product innovation. He's been the host of a national radio show for 30 years, which is also a podcast called The Truth About Your Future. And his latest book is called The Truth About Crypto, a practical, easy-to-understand guide to Bitcoin, blockchain, NFTs, and other digital assets. Hey, Rick, welcome to Something You Should Know. Mike, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. This whole idea of digital assets and Bitcoins, it, it always seems so hard to explain, or maybe it's just hard to understand, but a lot of people just shrug, shrug their shoulders and don't get it. Why is it so hard to get it? Yeah, it, you're absolutely right on both points. It's both hard to explain and hard to understand. And the reason is that it has no uh, simple analogy or metaphor that is relevant. Uh, it's a unique technology, brand new and innovative. Remember back to the internet back in the 90s? You know, it was incredibly difficult to explain that too. Uh, and it's because it's all totally new. It has its own vocabulary, terminology, and it's befuddling to a lot of folks. So you're absolutely right. Uh, but the good news is, once you get into it a little bit, you're just you'll discover that it really is easy to understand. It really is common sense. All right. Well, let's give it a shot. Help me in in very plain terms. Help me understand cryptocurrency and these other digital assets. Okay. Uh, here's what it comes down to. Uh, we all understand the internet today. That's the good news. I get to build on what we already know. We understand the internet. What we don't really fully think about on a daily basis is that the internet itself has been evolving. When we go back to the 1990s, when the internet was first introduced, that was, in hindsight, Internet 1.0. And it was rather limited, if you were old enough to remember the early usage of AOL uh, or surfing the web. All you were able to really do with it was read. All you did was look online at other people's websites and you could read whatever it was they posted there. Then came along Internet 2.0. That is where you were able to write. You were able to send emails and texts. You were able to upload data to Facebook and social media accounts. And we've all really had a lot of fun. We are about to introduce Internet 3.0, the ability to own on the Internet. We're going to not only be able to create our own content, we're going to be able to own that content and make money from it. And the way we're able to do this is through the latest innovation, and it's called blockchain technology. Blockchain technology allows digital assets to be created and distributed across the internet. We're going to be able to move money around the world as easily as we've been using emails and texts, moving them around the world. That's Internet 3.0, and that's what blockchain technology is. So you say soon, as if it's not happening, I thought it was happening. It really is, but it's not what I would call mainstream. This is, again, where AOL was in the late 1990s. We have 8 billion people on the planet. Only about 300 million 
own Bitcoin today. So Bitcoin is something everybody has now heard of, but the vast majority of people are still not yet engaged. Well, can you give me an example? Maybe Bitcoin is the example, but an example of blockchain technology in action. Sure. And Bitcoin is probably the the best known example of it. Bitcoin was the very first uh, digital asset invented using this technology. It was launched in 2009. So it's now been around for 14 years and it's the fastest growing um, asset class in history. Uh, It's also the very first asset class invented in about 170 years. The last time we had something new invented like this was the discovery of oil in the 1850s. So it's pretty rare that something totally new and different gets discovered or invented. And the adoption rate has been faster than anything else in history. And that's a large part of what makes all of this exciting. But what is the point about Bitcoin? Why do we need to bother or care? Uh, One simple example, and there are literally tens of thousands that I could give you, but let me just show you this one example to illustrate. Let's say that you wanted to move money from one person to another. Uh, That's a very common thing to do. And it's also common for us to send money from one person to another who lives in another country. This is called a cross-border payment, and it's routine for businesses as well as individuals to send money from one country to another country. Uh, It's a $4 trillion marketplace. That's how much money moves from one country to another over the course of a year. And about 20% of all that are individuals, typically immigrants. They come to the U.S., for example, for economic opportunity. They left their family back home, and they want to send money back to mama to help her out. Well, if you want to send money from the United States to Central America or South America or to Europe or to Asia, you've got to use the global financial system to do this. You've got to get to your bank and and wire the money, or you've got to use a payment system like Western Union. And under today's technology, if you were to use that, you're going to spend about 5% in fees and commissions, and the transaction itself will take about five days Along comes Bitcoin. With Bitcoin, you can send money to another person virtually instantaneously and virtually free. And nobody needs a bank account. This is revolutionary with profound implications for the nation's global financial system. This is what makes it so exciting and also, frankly, a little bit disconcerting. My understanding of a money system is that, you know, money is basically worthless unless everybody agrees it's worth something. And so who's agreeing that this is actually worth something? You're exactly right. That's a huge question, Mike, that people ask is, how do we determine the value of Bitcoin? Who says it's worth anything? Well, the answer is the same answer we have with all other assets. It's the the price is set by the marketplace. How do we decide what the price of IBM stock is? Investors make that decision. I'm willing to buy it. You're willing to sell it. We agree on a price. That is how the market sets the price. What really matters in the open marketplace is that on a 24-7 basis worldwide, people are every moment of every day buying and selling Bitcoins. And that price is being established in the open marketplace based on supply and demand. So the price is being established by the market. 
And like other assets, stocks and bonds and real estate, gold and oil and commodities, those prices fluctuate based on investor sentiment. And when you have Bitcoin, you can fairly easily convert it into currency, U.S. currency, or you, or you use it as Bitcoin and you pay with Bitcoin only to people who accept Bitcoin. Both. Uh, most people uh, are buying Bitcoin because they believe that the value or the price will rise. These are people who we call them holders. Uh, these are people who are buying it as an investment, the same reason people buy stocks. Another group of Bitcoin buyers buy Bitcoin because they want to transmit money to somebody else. Our example of sending money to mama in South America. So I'm buying the Bitcoin so I could send it to mama and she's going to convert it into her local currency as soon as she gets it. In that sense, Bitcoin is a payment system. It's similar to a bank checking account or to PayPal or Zelle or Venmo. And then a third group of people are using Bitcoin because they want to use it to purchase goods and services. You can use Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee. You, there are car dealers that will let you buy automobiles with Bitcoin. There are millions of merchants around the world who will allow you to buy their products or their services with digital assets such as Bitcoin and Ethereum and others. And so what's the risk? What, the, because people talk about, oh, it's very risky. Well, what, what, what's the risk? Well, there are two risks, and let's not kid ourselves. These are very real. We've got to pay a lot of attention to these. The number one risk is that Bitcoin is very volatile, as we have seen. Uh, the price rises and falls with a substantial regularity and pretty dramatic. Uh, Bitcoin is the fastest growing asset in history, as I mentioned. Since inception, it's up over 40 million percent. But we saw last year, in 2022, it fell over 70% in a single year. And by the way, that was the seventh time that that's happened to Bitcoin. So along the way to having huge profits, there have often been short intervals where it has had massive losses. The second risk is that Bitcoin is a digital asset, which means it only exists on the internet. Dollars you can hold in your pocket, you can throw into a safe or a vault or deposit them at a bank for safekeeping. And your dollars, if you do put them in a bank, are protected by the federal government through FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. None of that exists for Bitcoin. It's only a digital asset, which means being online, a hacker could break into your digital wallet, your digital account, and literally steal your money. So you've got to be careful that you have a good password, that you are safeguarding your password, that you are protecting your online account from online thieves. We're talking about digital assets, Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain technology, and my guest is Rick Edelman. He's a financial advisor, and the name of his book is The Truth About Crypto a practical, easy-to-understand guide to Bitcoin, blockchain, NFTs, and other digital assets. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. 
Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Rick, you're considered one of the top financial advisors in the country. What's your advice when it comes to crypto? My uh, advice, if you're going to own crypto, you should have 1% of your portfolio invested, just 1%. And the reason that I say that is because, number one, Bitcoin has proven to be the most successful investment ever. If that trend continues and Bitcoin continues to be highly successful, you don't need to have a lot of money in it. A 1% allocation can materially improve your overall returns from your complete portfolio. 1% is plenty. But if Bitcoin blows up and becomes worthless, it's only 1%. That's not going to harm you. It won't interfere with your future financial security. It'll be annoying, not devastating. And I would add one other point. After you buy it, hold on to it for years. Don't try to get rich quick. You want to give it the time it needs to deliver on the potential. I want to move on to other uh, things about digital assets. But but in terms of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, I guess, is the biggest, but do they all kind of move the same up and down? Is one as good as the other? Or like, how would you know which one to buy since there are so many? Yeah, uh, there are now 20,000 digital assets. Bitcoin is the oldest. It's the biggest. It has about a 40% market share. Uh, the number two digital coin is Ethereum, which also has about a 40% market share. So between those two, you've got 80% of the entire world of crypto. They're the Coke and Pepsi of crypto. And then there's everything else. So sure, you could buy 7up if you feel like it. But if you just stick to Bitcoin and Ethereum, do those two, call it a day. Uh, and there are companies, there are funds that allow you to do this for you that make it very simple and easy. Uh, you can do it in a brokerage account. Um, There are companies such as Bitwise uh, and Fidelity and Schwab that that facilitate this very simply and easily for you. Uh, So there are a lot of different ways you can engage. So what are some of the other digital assets? I hear about, you know, digital art and digital this and, you know, NFTs. So what does all that mean? So everything has evolved and grown really in a fascinating way, again, due to this new technology. NFTs are one of the most exciting aspects of crypto today, non-fungible tokens. Um, To understand what that is, we first have to understand what a fungible token is. And then we have to even understand what's a token. So let me explain really easily for you and quickly what this all means. A token is just something that is a representative of something else. You know, we hand you a rose as a token of my love. You use a little round uh, coin as a token on the subway to 
to take a ride. If you're in a penny arcade, you hand over tokens to play the games. So a token is just something that's a representation of something else. The deed is the token of my ownership of my house. A fungible token means they're all identical. In other words, if I lend you a dollar, Mike, and you repay me, you don't have to give me back the same dollar. Any dollar will do because dollars are fungible. One is the same as all the rest. A non-fungible token is unique. If I give you, if I were to lend you my car, you better give me back my car. My car is unique. I don't want you to give me any car. So my car is a non-fungible token. It's unique. And in the world of digital assets, we can take anything, a piece of art, and we can create a digital token that represents that art. And if I create a unique piece of art, the token becomes unique. It becomes a non-fungible token. And so people have been creating and selling digital art called NFTs. We can sell concert tickets because if you think about it, each concert ticket is unique. Tonight, in a certain seat, at a certain time, you get to watch the concert or go to that ball game. Or I can use a hotel room. I stay in a certain room on a certain night. That's unique too. Or a seat on an airplane. That's unique. We can sell these NFTs that each have unique attributes. And because I can do this online using blockchain technology, I can create this art for free. I can sell them safely and securely. I can manage them conveniently. And I can create entirely new classes of investments. And we're beginning to see the tokenization of real estate, artwork, deeds, virtually everything in the physical world can be represented online as an NFT. And when you talk about NFTs for digital art, is it is the NFT is a token that uh, of ownership for a piece of actual art in the real world, or it's digital art? I, I guess I'm I don't get it. You do get it. You, you get this a lot better than you think, Mike, because the answer is both. Some digital art is only a digital file. It's a JPEG or it's a PDF uh, or it's a PowerPoint slide, and it only exists as a digital item. Others are physical. Uh, for example, NBA, uh, the National Basketball Association, has issued an entire series of NFTs they call Top Shots. Think of the old baseball cards we used to trade as kids. The NBA has made a series of digital cards for the basketball players. And because they're digital, they aren't just photographs of the players. They're also video files. They also have tickets to games. They give you access to uh, special events with your favorite players. So these NFTs are both digital and physical. Have there yet been any of these, whether it's NFTs, digital art kind of things that have really paid off like this? Boy, I'm sure I, I'm sure glad I got in early. Or are we still waiting for things to pay off? Oh, no, there have been more millionaires produced out of the world of Bitcoin so far than just about any other asset class. Last year alone, 
people who created NFTs earned more than a billion dollars in royalties. Uh, so there is an awful lot of money being made by an awful lot of people. And they are not only big businesses doing this, they're individuals doing it. There's a 12-year-old kid in London who invented his own series of NFTs and he sold them for more than $5 million, age 12. What were they? So this is some, he created a series of NFTs. They were digital art of uh, whales. He drew a series of whales and he created them as digital art and he sold the whales online and people bought them. And so many people bought them and they were bidding them up because there were a limited number of these available that people got very excited about this art and the prices went up and up and up and he ended up selling them for millions of dollars. And then because this is digital art, there's a feature that if you were to have bought one of those whales and you decided to sell it to somebody else, he, the 12-year-old, got a royalty on your resale. Well, I think you've given a really good explanation. I have a better understanding now of all the, the digital asset world and what it's all about. I've been talking to Rick Edelman. He is a financial advisor. In fact, Barron's has ranked him three times as the nation's number one independent financial advisor. He has a radio show and book called The Truth About Your Future and a book called the Truth About Crypto, a practical, easy-to-understand guide to Bitcoin, blockchain, NFTs, and other digital assets. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Appreciate it. Thanks for being here, Rick. Well, I'm glad, Mike. I'm glad I was able to be helpful. This episode of Something You Should Know is being published just a few days before the Oscars 2023, when Hollywood recognizes excellence in the film business. And certainly, the Academy Awards have had an interesting, glamorous, and sometimes controversial past, which I imagine over the years you've probably shared in by watching at least some of the award shows on television, and perhaps rooted for your favorite actor or movie. Michael Shulman, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker, has taken a fascinating look back at the history of the Academy Awards, as it has evolved from just being an industry banquet to what it has become today. He's written a book about it called Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold, sweat, and tears. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks for having me. So first of all, the Academy Awards are given out by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So what is that? What is the Academy? What is it that that organization does besides put on the award show? What, what is the purpose of the Academy? They are uh, essentially a industry organization. It was founded in 1927. And the reason the Academy was founded has basically nothing to do with awards. Awards just became what they became known for. Um, they were originally founded as a way of, of, of solving disputes among different branches of, of Hollywood professions. And they were in part a way for the studio heads like Louis B. Mayer to forestall unionization of the actors and writers and directors and such. And they also, uh, one of the reasons they uh, started the Academy was to put a good face on the industry. In the 1920s, the Hollywood was beset with all sorts of salacious scandals like the Fatty Arbuckle trial for rape and murder. 
And kind of then as now, uh, there was a culture war in the country. And a lot of people uh, in the sort of conservative side of the country felt that Hollywood was a, a cesspool of sin. And um, there was a real threat of censorship of the movies. And so part of why the Academy was created was to essentially give a kind of loftier face to to movies. So those are some of the reasons why the Academy was started. And then the first Academy Awards were given out in 1929. And throughout the 30s, the Academy sort of shed some of the more controversial labor purposes it had. And the the Academy Awards became what people liked that they did. So it became bigger and bigger and got more attention. And so now the Academy is mostly known for the Oscars, but they also do a lot of other stuff. They have a wonderful library. They have a big museum that just opened. They do grants to support filmmakers, stuff like that. But still, really, the, the, the bulk of their income and their operations and, their, um, and what people know them for are the Oscars. And who is Oscar? Who is Oscar? That is a bit of a mystery, how the award got its name. It was during the 1930s, and there are different people who claim ownership of of the nickname. Um, One of them is Betty Davis, who said in her memoir that she won the award, and the, the back view of the statuette reminded her of her husband's, and his middle name was Oscar. And so... Thereafter, it, sh- it has been called Oscar, but, uh, but this was totally wrong. Um, it had been referred to in print as the Oscar years before that. There are about four different origin stories, and nobody really knows for sure what it was, but um, the name kind of caught on. It was originally sort of an irreverent, jokey way of talking about this award, and eventually it became a trademarked official name for the award. The popularity of the the awards, was that on purpose? Was there a deliberate attempt to let's make the world share this with us and that'll help hype the movies? Or or was it very organic? People just said, hey, this is kind of cool. Look at all these movie stars together in the same place saying and doing silly things. And that was really cool to see. Well, originally, the awards of merit, as they were originally called, were just on a long list of ideas that the Academy had. And the first ceremony was uh, the Academy's second anniversary banquet dinner at the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood. And they had a big dinner, they had speeches, and then the awards were given out at the end in under 15 minutes. And over the next decade or so, they started to get broadcast on radio. Of course, by the 50s, they were on television. I don't know if anyone at the Academy really could foresee how popular they would become. But one person who really championed them was Frank Capra, the director of uh, movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life, etc. He was the president of the Academy in the 30s. And he really wanted to win an Academy Award uh, at the start of his career. And he writes in his memoir about how he, he just schemed day and night to win an Oscar and made this movie and made that movie and finally um, won for It Happened One Night. And he really championed the awards. He's the one who actually realized that in order for the Oscars to survive, the Academy had to stop meddling in labor disputes because they were being boycotted by by SAG and all these new uh, guilds that formed. 
At what point along the way did it become clear that, hey, if you win an Oscar, this could be really good for your career, this could really up the box office for this movie, this, this could be a really big deal? When did, when did that, was that all very, well, how did that happen? Yeah, fairly quickly. I mean, the Oscars became really popular almost immediately. People, as, as soon as there was an award to win, people in Hollywood wanted to win it. And I think throughout the 30s, uh, it became clear that an Academy Award was a, a boon to a movie or an actor. Um, and you saw people start to campaign. MGM was the first studio to place an ad uh what we would now call a four-year consideration ad, though they didn't use the phrase then. And, you know, people went to uh, some lengths to, to, to get them. I mean, in, in 1935, uh, Betty Davis did a movie called Of Human Bondage and was notably not nominated for the role. There was such an outcry that the Academy had to open the voting up to write-in votes. And uh, she lost. She lost to um, Claudette Colbert for It Happened One Night. But it's the outrage over the fact that Betty Davis did not get an Oscar. It was sort of the first big Oscar snub. Um, it just goes to show you how seriously people took it. Well, because of what it signifies. I mean, when you're an Academy Award winning actor or an Academy Award winning movie, you're kind of in royalty. It sets you up for success, right? Yes, although the flip side is what people sometimes call the Oscar curse, where someone wins an Oscar and then they suddenly take a career dive. I mean, you know, there, there are a bunch of examples. I mean, Hillary Swank won two Oscars in a row around the turn of the century and um, this century and um, and then sort of had a had a slump. And, you know, Halle Berry won this historic Oscar as the first black actress to win Best Best Actress for Monsters Ball. And then the next thing she did was Catwoman. And, uh, you know, Anne Hathaway won for Les Miserables. And that was sort of the beginning of everyone deciding that they hated Anne Hathaway. So especially <laughs> for women, I feel like there's this danger zone when you win an Oscar. And it doesn't always translate into your career getting better. Sometimes that is the height from which you plummet. I imagine in the beginning, there were far fewer Oscars handed out at any one event than there are now. Now we have so many different categories and songs and music and, and cinematography. And How many were handed out in the first one? Well, the first Academy Awards had nine categories, and the categories have always changed. They're still changing. Actually, the first year, there were two essentially top prizes. There was something called Outstanding Picture and then something called Best Unique and Artistic Picture. So Outstanding Picture went to Wings, which was this big World War II uh, plane extravaganza. And then Best Unique and Artistic Picture went to uh, Sunrise, which was uh, uh, the German director F.W. Murnau's kind of psychodrama. So that was, a, you know, that was something that immediately changed in year two. Also, the first year had Best title writing, meaning the intertitles in silent films. And, you know, this was the moment when talkies were emerging and silent film was quickly dying. So Joseph Farnham has the honor of being the first and only winner of best title writing. What are some of your favorite kind of quirky moments or, or as you look back at the history of, of this whole thing, what are some of the 
favorite moments or, or bizarre moments that, that happened that we may or may not remember or have even heard well, of? Okay, so one of the lesser-known Oscar scandals that I write about is in 1957, uh, the actress Deborah Carr came out and presented an award for Best Motion Picture Story. This is not a category that exists anymore. And it went to someone named Robert Rich for a movie called The Brave One. It's a movie about a Mexican boy and his pet bull. And uh, Robert Rich was not there. Someone accepted on his behalf, but then no one could find him. He didn't exist. Uh, the, the producers of the movie said, well, we met this guy in Munich and he was an ex-GI and we bought the story idea from him and maybe he's in Europe somewhere, maybe he's in Australia, we're trying to find him. It was uh, what Life magazine called a who won it. Nobody could find this phantom Oscar winner. Now, what was happening in Hollywood in the, in, in the 1950s? Um, the, the blacklist. The House Un-American Activities Committee was investigating suspected communists. A lot of people were being put on the blacklist for defying the committee or having once been a part of the Communist Party. And so Robert Rich was, in fact, a front name for um, the screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who was one of the screenwriters who had actually gone to prison for defying uh, the House committee. And uh, there was a whole black market where screenwriters were writing under pseudonyms. And that's what he had done. He'd actually been self-exiled to Mexico and had seen a, a, a bullfight and came up with this idea, sold it to these producers, um, and was sitting at home watching the awards on TV when he saw this sort of fake persona win. And so what he did was spend the next two years using all the, the, the press interest in this fake person to try to turn the tables on the industry and the academy and to try to destroy the blacklist by embarrassing um, the people who were implementing it. And uh, it's just an incredible story of this guy sort of using his wiles, his creativity, his humor to sort of gain the upper hand when he had absolutely no power. Um, he actually sent in a little poem to Life magazine that went, um, come back, Robert Rich, wherever you are. Do you live on the moon? Do you live on a star? You know, he was having fun with it. He eventually, famously, in 1960, became the first blacklisted screenwriter to get a screen credit under his own name for the movies Exodus and Spartacus. So this, even in this little weird Oscar moment about Robert Rich, who is that? You get this entire epic story of how these, uh, how these blacklisted screenwriters fought back. Are there any good... Uh, I would imagine when you get all those egos in a room that there must be some weird little backstage, behind-the-scenes tantrums or just... Just any quirky things that have happened that that because they are who they are. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there there's just endless stories of people colliding backstage. You know, I mean, one uh, year that I write about is the 1970 Oscars, which was a real collision of the sort of classic Hollywood and the counterculture that was emerging um, and had emerged in the 60s. It was sort of uh, Hollywood was kind of late to it. Uh, this was the year that Midnight Cowboy won Best Picture, and it was the first and only Best Picture to be rated X um, because the, the the letter rating system was brand new. X was not quite what we think of now. It wasn't didn't mean pornography. Um, it meant 
you know, for adults. And Midnight Cowboy was a pretty racy movie. And there's a story uh, backstage of the star of the movie, John Voight, running into Fred Astaire backstage. And they kind of like nod to each other with respect, like these two halves of, of this sort of divided culture, sort of paying respect to each other. Of course, John Voight is now, you know, a rock hard conservative, but back then he was kind of the symbol of, you know, the new Hollywood emerging and, and the sort of hippie culture. I would imagine that one of the factors that determines if somebody wins is how much money they spend promoting the fact that they want they want to win an academy award and you see those those ads for you know your consideration and uh, so, so any any good fights of, of movies trying to battle the other to try to win the actual award you know one year that went down in history as the ugliest best picture fight of all time was 1999 um the rivalry between Saving Private Ryan and Shakespeare in Love. Um, so Saving Private Ryan was, of course, Steven Spielberg. It was put out from his uh, his studio at the time, DreamWorks, while Shakespeare in Love was Harvey Weinstein, and it was Miramax. And Harvey Weinstein was known for his... Back then, what he was notorious for was his extremely aggressive uh, campaigning and marketing tactics. So he just blanketed the trade magazines with ads for Shakespeare in Love. He threw a million parties. He uh, got all this press and publicity and kind of made everyone in the, hall, in, in, in the Academy feel like, okay, this, this, you had to see this movie. Whereas Spielberg was very reluctant to campaign for Saving Private Ryan because he felt the movie should speak for itself. It's, it has this gravitas. It's about the greatest generation and, and fighting in World War II. Um, and suddenly, uh, DreamWorks really felt like something was being stolen from them, uh, rightly or wrongly. That's how they felt. And then they heard this rumor that Weinstein was bad-mouthing Saving Private Ryan by saying the only good thing in it was the first 25 minutes, the, the storming of the beach at, at Normandy on D-Day. And after that, it just became a kind of standard World War II movie. And once they heard that, they were completely incensed and started going to the press and complaining about everything that Miramax was doing. It just became this flat-out war between these two studios. And um, on Oscar night, Saving Private Ryan was still the presumed frontrunner. But when Shakespeare in Love won, the DreamWorks people were furious. Uh, the head of marketing, Terry Press, was watching from the mezzanine, and she said that her face felt like it was on fire. And she suddenly couldn't feel her, like her feet were, her legs were getting wobbly. She thought she was going to faint. Backstage, uh, there was a DreamWorks publicist standing next to a Miramax publicist. And the DreamWorks person turned to him and said, you know, never speak to me again and walked away. I mean, there was such uh, acrimony between these two uh, studios from that race. And uh, what was important about this very ugly Oscar race going forward is that it sparked this arms race, essentially, where the next year DreamWorks said, okay, we are not going to let this happen again. We're going to take the Weinstein playbook and double it. And so they had American Beauty that year, and they outspent every other studio in ads, and they won. And then the next year they did it again for Gladiator and won again. And then two years after that, Miramax won for Chicago. And every studio now wanted to do whatever Weinstein had done because there was this perception that he had he had basically campaigned his way 
to an Academy Award for a movie that didn't deserve it. What is your sense? I mean, my sense is that, that because I remember not all that long ago, it was probably around the time when, like, Johnny Carson was, was the host of the Oscars for several years. That that was kind of like the, the pinnacle. And, and people used to have Oscar parties. and But, but it's, it just, it seems like the show isn't as good as it used to be. The ratings are down. People don't want to hear the politics. And what, what's your sense? What's happened that, you know, they have trouble getting hosts? I mean, it just, it seems like it's lost something. Maybe it has. I mean, I feel like the problem with um, the Oscars being relevant or ratings problems, it doesn't have so much to do with the ceremony, I think. It has to do with, it's it's kind of bigger than the Academy and the Oscars. It has to do with the role of movies in our lives. You have these kind of blockbuster franchise movies like the Marvel movies or Avatar, stuff like that, that is really the only thing that people are going out to theaters to see. And then you have the sort of small art house movies that um, are often nominated for Academy Awards, things like Tar, for instance, this year, or Nomadland, or The Power of the Dog. And people have gotten so used to watching those kinds of movies on streaming. I mean, especially since the pandemic, we've all just, you know, people aren't going out to the theater as much. And so movies have a different role in our lives. And um, the kind of mid-budget movie, like the Kramer versus Kramers and As Good As It Gets, the sort of like adult dramas and adult comedies that were sort of in the middle that um, that used to sort of bind the Academy Awards to popular culture a little bit more, those aren't being made as much because people aren't going to see them in the theater or they've kind of migrated to television. And at the same time, it's much harder now to get everyone in the country watching the same thing on television. We just don't have that kind of monoculture anymore where everyone is watching the same show. Like it's, it's a much more fragmented culture that we have now. So the Oscars still um, are watched by a lot more people than most other things, but compared to, you know, the year Titanic one, you know, that was the sort of the high point of Oscar ratings because that movie was not just the best picture winner, but it was this gigantic world conquering hit. Well, for me, and and I think anybody who goes to the movies, there's still a mystique about the Academy Awards. and, And it's just, it's fun to hear the stories. Michael Shulman has been my guest. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker. And the name of his book is Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat and Tears. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Michael. All right, thank you so much. Around the time of the Revolutionary War, according to one source, fewer than 5% of people had middle names. By 1900, almost everybody did. Why do we have middle names? Well, for a variety of reasons, but very often it's a way to keep a family name going, preserve a relationship, or honor someone in the family. Still, a lot of middle names seem to be going to waste. According to experts, people use their middle name less and less. In fact, statistics say only 1 in 10 people use their middle name regularly. Even if you don't like it, consider yourself lucky if you have a middle name. Most people without a given middle name report feeling slighted and often wish they did have one. And that is something you should know. 
The fact that you're listening to this podcast means a lot to me. I, I know there are millions of, pod, literally millions of podcasts you could be listening to, and you've chosen this one, and I greatly appreciate it and hope you'll tell a friend. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.